0: So as I said, we are in this study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and we uh, really just recently in the last couple of weeks um, turned the corner into Genesis chapter 6 and kind of began our foray into this grand sweeping flood narrative in the story of Noah. And so that's kind of where we're going to pick up today in our study. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, we dealt with the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6, which really... Um, is kind of like a spiritual backstory to the flood narrative, the way that that plays out. You really see God's perspective on what's going on on planet Earth and what his ultimate objective is going to be. And it's really just sort of a diagnosis of of, what's, of the wickedness that is on the Earth and what God's plan is for judgment. And then you have that last verse in, in, in that section where it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and then you turn the corner into... These verses of Genesis chapter 6 verses 9 to 22, which really start the formal section called the generations of Noah. And that's where the real narrative of the flood and the flood story begins to unfold in Genesis chapter 6 verses 9 to 22. So in order to kind of get the whole sweep of this passage in our minds and kind of context for us as we think about this today, I'm just going to read for us the entire section of verses 9 to 22 in Genesis chapter 6. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. make it make with it lower make it with lower second and third decks for behold i will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is in which is the breath of life under heaven everything that is on the earth shall die but i will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark you and your sons your wife and your sons' wives with you and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you they shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind two of every sort shall come into you come to you come into you to keep them alive also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up it shall serve as food for you and for them noah did this and he did all that god commanded him so you have in this passage this this grand set of instructions, really. The focus of this text really is on God speaking to Noah, some very specific instructions. And really, this section, I, what I want to do this week, and of course, next week we'll be divided again, but uh, this week I want to focus on the two central characters in this narrative, which is, of course, Noah and God. These are the two central characters. Last week, we, last couple of weeks, we dealt with the backstory, the spiritual backstory. Really, This week, rather than getting so much into the apologetic arguments for, you know, is this a real story, or is it myth, or into arguments about the size of the ark and could it fit all the animals, or how did it, how did it handle the torrents and winds and waves, I'm, I am not want to talk about all the polemic discussion that we could have, and we'll deal with a little bit of that next week, but really I think that this passage gives us some great insight into these main characters of God and Noah and some things that we can really, uh, I think, be blessed by as we see their character put forward on the page. And of course, ultimately, we know that God's word is, is intended to reveal the character and nature and person of God and his plan of redemption, and so we certainly want to highlight that in our study as well. But we'll begin kind of where the text begins, with this man, Noah. And the way I've kind of titled this section as we talk about Noah is we have Noah here as this man of great distinction. A man of tremendous distinction. And really the focus of that is in verses 9 to 12 and then also one verse in in verse 22 at the very end. But what we see here in the text as the narrative unfolds is you see Noah and you see his character and his nature really set in stark contrast to everything and everyone going on around him. That's really how the narrative presents him to us. His life and his character is in direct contrast to that of of literally the rest of mankind in his generation, it says. He stands in great distinction. Uh, We looked uh, previously in the the first eight verses at how society at Noah's time was completely dominated by demonic influence, utterly dominated by this demonic influence as the sons of God. We, 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 Identified them as fallen angels. We talked about, I'm kind of doing a little bit of background here. We talked about the various views of this passage, and we sort of landed for our study on the view that it was fallen angels who had possessed men completely and, and men willingly embracing demonic influence. And then they lusted after the daughters of men, and they took them as wives, it says. And verse 2 is, and it took any, of the, any they chose, it says. So there was this, really, this perversion that took place of the very foundational entity of society, and that's marriage and the family. It talks about how man continued to multiply on the earth, and that multiplication of family life, if you will, was a multiplication of utter and complete wickedness and demonic influence. And so it really was a comprehensive satanic assault on the very foundation of society that was taking place in Noah's day. And, and man continued to multiply, and so you, as you can imagine, this demonic influence coupled with man's innate sinful nature, his fallen and corrupt nature, uh, it literally permeated humankind. And So much so that actually the Lord sa- saw, it says, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, it says in verse 5. So this pervasive wickedness was not just... Wicked actions. It wasn't just perversion of home and family and marital union, but it was a complete and comprehensive corruption of man's heart and mind, it says. And that's the environment that Noah was in. And this depravity of man was reiterated in our passage here in verses 11 to 12, when it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This emphasis on man's corruption is what we see in our section here. Utter and complete corruption. Sort of a a hearkening of, of Psalm 14 that says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the corruption of society that that Noah lived in. And then there was also violence. This term violence was used to describe the society. So there's utter corruption, moral corruption, complete impurity, complete um, deprivation of the foundational institution of society, home and family. But there was also great violence. There's an emphasis here on violence. The Dictionary of the Old Testament describes it this way this, this term, this, this phrase filled with violence, like this cold blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate, and often making use of physical violence and brutality. John Calvin described it this way these are the fruits of impiety that men, when they have revolted from God, Forgetful of mutual equity among themselves are carried forward to insane ferocity, to plunder, and to oppression of all sorts. That's, that's life in Noah's day. That's society in Noah's day. And then there's Noah, this man of great distinction. And we learn of him, first of all, in verse 8, in the prior section that we looked at a few weeks ago, over the last couple of weeks, that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord that he was a recipient of the grace of God. And then in our text today, we're given more details about this distinguished man of God, distinguished from all in his generation, it says. And so it gives us a few attributes of this distinction, and I want us to kind of look at that briefly as we kind of highlight this this central character in this, this great story, this great redemptive story. Uh, It first of all tells us that he was a righteous man. verse 9, he was a righteous man, a man who was right with God, a man who belongs to God, a man who belongs to God because he has fully given himself to God in faith. That that was the nature of his righteousness. Hebrews 11.7 describes Noah in this way, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was a man of faith and a man of righteousness, a man made right with God, a man who belonged to God, a man who had given himself fully to God in faith. And he was a blameless man, it says. This describes something, this term actually, this Hebrew term, it literally destru- describes something that is perfect or flawless or complete. It's actually the same term that's used in Leviticus to describe uh, sacrificial animals that are perfect and without blemish. There's, a, there's a, a, a completeness to his life. The profile of Noah's life and his conduct was one of just consummate purity and virtue. That was a distinguishing characteristic of this man of God of consummate purity and virtue, blameless, without blemish. Now, of course, that's not to say that he was not uh, born like all men with a sin nature, but through the, the righteousness of God in him and his faithfulness to God, he was living out that faith in purity and excellence in purity. And then we see that he was a devout man, that he walked with God, it says, that moniker that he walked with God, that designation that he walked with God. This is the same term that was used, if you may recall, from Genesis chapter 5 of Enoch, that he in that, in that litany of they were born and they lived this long and they had a son and he was given this name and they had other sons and daughters and then he died. It goes over and over and over again. But you come to Enoch and it says, and he walked with God. This, this distinguishing characteristic that Scripture highlights for Noah as well, that he was a man of daily, walking, living, breathing devotion, a very devout man. He walked humbly with God, no matter the circumstances or the consequence. I don't think we can really fathom what a walk with God must have been like or looked like or felt like in that day and time. I mean, imagine when the testimony of life and society in that day and time is that every thought in their tensions of their heart were only evil continually. That they were inclined toward violence. That it was an utterly depraved culture and society, and yet you have this man who is walking devoutly, day by day by day. This man of great distinction. I also think that even though this is not particularly an explicit thing in the text, I think it certainly implied that he was an influential family man. I mean, if you think about it, he had three sons, grown sons, who were married. They were going to be going on the ark with him, right? And they followed his lead. You don't see any indication of fallout or any indication of family strife. And you have to know that there was temptation for that. They lived in a culture and a society where there was probably temptation to stray and fall away, maybe ridicule. I mean, we don't know. But if you just assume what kind of takes place as is, is we live in a culture in relationship with people and our work and our family life and our community life, and so it stands to reason that Noah must have been a man who, who had the trust of his sons and his wives and their wives, and that they just they followed him, they followed his lead in this. Again, we don't have explicit indication of that. It's certainly inferred in the text. But just a note about, about his distinguishing characteristics. And then, of course, we have in verse 22 that he was an obedient man. It says in verse 22 that he obeyed God, that he did this. In other words, build this giant vessel in a land where there is no rain. And, you know, not that, there's no indication that he was a trained shipbuilder, right? So he just did it. He just submitted and obeyed willingly. It says Noah did this in verse 22, and he did all that God commanded him. So there's this indication of comprehensive obedience. And it's obviously rooted in this comprehensive faith and trust in God. I mean, just imagine the the depth and degree and and complete abandonment of total trust in the God he walked with to do this thing willingly to pursue this monumental and, on the face of it, completely insane task. A level of submission and obedience that's rooted in deep, deep trust and confidence in the character and Word of God. Now, I want you just to think for a moment with me, and we can even think for a moment about how this passage in particular, this narrative in particular about Noah and the ark and this fanciful tale you know, that that nursery wallpaper is made of and, you know, there's nursery toys that you can do and all that, this crazy idea about this flood and this big boat and people getting on it and all that, silly stuff. Most of the time, people are skeptical of this because they they don't trust the Word of God. They don't trust in God. Even Even Christians, professing Christians who might categorize the narrative of Genesis, or at least the first three chapters, or maybe even the first 11 chapters, maybe even the whole book, would categorize it as, you know, principled stories that are rooted in sort of myth and legend and ancient Near Eastern literature of the day. Their their lack of confidence is rooted in a lack of trust in the Word of God and submitting to that. And yet, here's, here's Noah, given this task this amazingly complex, arduous, long-spanning task of constructing a giant wooden box to float on water that was going to cover the earth that no one would believe. And in the, in the, in the commentary of the Word of God on him is that he did it. And he did everything else that the Lord commanded him to do. That is an amazing Distinguishing characteristic for a man of God. John Calvin kind of holds up this tremendous contrast in this way as this man of distinction. He says, It was a remarkable instance of constancy that Noah, being surrounded on every side with the filth of iniquity, should have hence contracted no contagion, We know how great is the force of custom, so that nothing is more difficult than to live wholly among the wicked and to avoid being led away by their evil examples. As the singular virtue of Noah is here commended, so let us remember that we are instructed what we ought to do, though the whole world were rushing to its own destruction. If at the present time the morals of men are so vitiated and the whole mode of life so confused that probity or uprightness or decency has become most rare. Still more vile and dreadful was the confusion in the time of Noah when he had not even one associate in the worship of God and in the pursuit of holiness. If he could bear up against the corruptions of the whole world and against such constant and vehement assaults of iniquity, no excuses left for us unless with equal fortitude of mind, we prosecute a right course through innumerable obstacles of vice. This was a man of great distinction, a man of great character, a man of tremendous, deep, abiding faith. And rooted in that was a desire to obey and please the God he walked with and knew and trusted and believed in. And as I think about these distinguishing characteristics about this man, I'm Greatly convicted in how weak my faith can be so quickly. I, I mean, I, I, I prayed this morning this prayer of gratitude for the fellowship that we enjoy. Wake up week in and week out and even midweek opportunities to fellowship with people in the body of Christ of like precious faith. Whose aim is to encourage me and to spur me on to love and good deeds. Day after day after day after day. And yet, my faith and my submission to the will and word of God on a consistent basis can falter so easily. Because I'm so conditioned around my own convenience, my own comfort, my own microwave oven, my own car that takes me. You know what I'm saying? We're just so consumed with the ease and comfort of life. I think we do well to look at this man of distinction like Noah and think about the life that he lived of honor and obedience and submission and faithfulness and a daily walk with God in a crooked and perverse generation beyond what we could possibly imagine. Well, we have, in addition to this man of distinction, we have this sovereign God of both wrath and rescue. Again, the common refrain that we see as we see God revealing himself in Scripture, particularly in Genesis, is he is a sovereign God. He is an all-powerful God who does what he pleases. He is a creator God. He is a God who judges iniquity. But there is always the God who saves, the God who rescues on display, even in the midst of judgment. And it's no different in this great account of Noah and the judgment of the flood. So let's look for a moment at this sovereign God of wrath and rescue. Just take a look at that central character as well. So we see that, first of all, God is the autonomous judge, jury, and executioner. Completely autonomous from anyone else. That's what struck me as I kind of observed this passage and and the narrative here. Verses 11 and 12, it says in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, It was corrupt in God's sight. In other words, it's God's view of things that really matters here. It's how God deems the earth and the inhabitants of it. It was corrupt in his sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And then verse 12, And God saw, so it's what God saw that mattered. He saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, God's judgment on the earth was completely autonomous, without reference to anyone or anything else, always in reference only to himself, to his character, to his own nature, to his divine prerogative, to his perfect law and his perfect word. That's the basis upon which God judges. Now, we can look at the description and we can say, yeah, good on God, bad on them, look how wicked they were, right? Right? But in fact, the reality is is that God's justice is often coming into question because, for the very reason that I just mentioned in our lack of submission and obedience, because we deem that somehow we have the supreme transcendent knowledge on what is fair and right and just. And so if it doesn't make sense to our sense of justice, then there's a problem. And what we see here is that God does not refer or seek counsel, or call up for references, or ask for a lifeline, or anything. He saw what he saw, and he deemed it worthy of his judgment. And that was it. He was the judge. And he judges autonomously, without reference to anyone or anything else. He's also the jury. He's the judge and the jury. Verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Are you guys really uplifted and encouraged by this narrative so far? But he's the jury, so the sentence, it's his to give. He doesn't give that up to anyone else. It's his. And the sentence here is, an end of all flesh, destroy the earth, done. So he's the judge who's autonomous and sovereign, He's the jury who levels out the sentence and the sentence is perfect and according to his purpose and his will. And he's also the executioner of that sentence. Verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters. So I'm telling you, here's how I'm going to do it. Here's what it's going to look like. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's the first thing we see about this God of judgment. This God of the sovereign God of wrath. It's a God in whom we should shudder to fall into his hands, right? When we see this judgment being poured out, it should not cause us to question, well, that's pretty extreme, right? I mean, everybody? No. The response should be a response of awe at the power and autonomy. And perfect righteousness and perfect judgment of, of a sovereign God, and that's what's on display here in this account. well, fortunately, especially for us who name Christ and are beneficiaries of the grace of God he's not just the sovereign god of wrath, but he's also a god of rescue he is and he's not just the, he's not just a deliverer this is what's so great about this passage and so great about God and so great about. All that we see of this that I'm about to share with you in Scripture. He's not just the deliverer, but he's the designer of deliverance. Like He plans it. It's designed. He's not just saying, I will deliver you. It's meticulously planned. And that's what we see revealed in this account in verses 14 to 21. We see this design for deliverance in the design of the ark. Again, there's a lot that we could talk about about size and shape and seaworthiness and all those things. And we'll do a little bit of that next time. But let's just look at this, this design work for a moment, in verse, starting in verse 14. He tells Noah, look, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So there's like specific wood you need to make the ark from. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So he's talking to him about the internal design." And he's talking to him about sealing it and making it waterworthy, right? So he's giving him specific design elements there. And covered inside and out with pitch. Verse 15. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. So specific dimensions. This, this, this vessel of rescue, this vessel of deliverance. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife's sons. So this promise of rescue and deliverance. You, what I am designing for you is your deliverance. What, what we are planning here is, is a covenant Relationship. It's a covenant salvation. That's what we're designing. He goes on with more detail. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up it shall serve for you. It shall serve as food for you, and for them. This is a this is a deliverance design. This is a rescue design. So God is not just a sovereign judge, jury, and executioner, but He's also the designer, the planner, the specific planner of deliverance. I couldn't help but think. Uh, well, let's talk. Actually, we'll talk a little bit about this design because I think there are some. Some fun things to, or some fascinating things to think about when we think about this design um, that are that, that are uh, that I think speak to this, the sovereign, omniscient power and authority and wisdom of God. But think about the the day and time that this this ship, this vessel design, this big giant box design, it's really thought of that it was the ark was sort of like a, a vessel. The only other time. That this term, this Hebrew term, is used is when uh, Moses was placed in that vessel on the river to be saved. Another vessel of rescue. It's the only other time it's used. So, but it's thought that it was more like a chest, a hollow chest, or some kind of box. So it's not like it's, you know, some of the some of the pictures you see. You know, if you watch, uh, you know, Noah's Ark cartoon or something. You know, and it's nicely shaped with a hole and everything. This is probably more like a chest or a box, but it's designed to float on water. Not, don't really know what gopher wood is. It's probably some type of some type of wood, cedar or cypress tree, something that was abundant in that area. Um, it certainly wasn't designed for speed or or you know fast travel or anything. It was designed to be seaworthy in that kind of travail, in that kind of tumultuous environment. And so the dimensions of it, just quickly. Um, Roughly, if it, depends on, it depends upon what measurement for cubit you use. There's, there's some variance within that, so it could be 18 to 20-ish feet. So, but if you, if you use 18 inches as, as a measure for cubits, it would be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And just so you know, these dimensions would be seaworthy in this environment. There was a scientific study that was actually done that endorsed the seaworthiness of the ark. I thought this was really fascinating. Um, Dr. I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's a a Korean gentleman. Uh, Dr. Sion Won Hong, I think is how you pronounce it. It's S-E-O-N is the first name. Dr. Sion Won Hong. He was a principal research scientist when he headed up the Noah's Ark investigation. He earned a BS degree in naval architecture from Seoul National University and a PhD degree in applied mechanics from University of Michigan Ann Arbor, so relevant educational background, right? And this study determined that the proportions of the art were found to be were found uh, to carefully balance the conflicting demands of stability, comfort, and strength. Uh, it was the focus of this major study, and um, they compared twelve hulls of different proportions to discover which design was most practical. No hull shape was found to significantly outperform the 4,300-year-old the biblical design. In fact, the ark's careful balance is easily lost if the proportions are modified, rendering the vessel either unstable, prone to fracture, or dangerously uncomfortable. The research team found that the proportions of Noah's ark carefully balance the conflicting demands of stability, resistance to capsizing, comfort, seakeeping, and strength, In fact, the Ark has the same proportions as a modern cargo ship. Now think of that. Think of when this design was delivered. And it's currently proportional to designs today of cargo ships. The study also confirmed that the Ark could handle waves as high as 100 feet. So interesting that we have a sovereign yes up in answers in genesis is the um the ministry that built Ken- that designed Ken- that right thing. yeah Anybody been to the Should we like go next week? Maybe have a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> Blow off Sunday morning. We're going up to the... field trip. Yeah, field trip. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it, so it just it to me, it just just listening to these things. Obviously, there's there's all kinds of skepticism and doubt that's out there about you know the viability of this, and and I'm not one of those that says you know what we have to do to defend the scripture is to go find you know. Scientific data to support everything that Scripture says, and then we can believe it. That's not the point. The point is is that God is omniscient. And if He wants to design a vessel that will keep eight people alive for that time span while He judges the earth, He can do that. And even if He made it out of styrofoam and whatever, He could still do it. But it's just fascinating to me that you have this meticulous, specific design information being presented here in the Scriptures all pointing in my mind to the glory of God as a designer of deliverance, a planner of deliverance. I couldn't help but think of that passage in Acts chapter 2 where Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The God and his deliverance and his rescue mission and his redemptive plan, it is his plan. He is the designer of deliverance. Well, there's much more obviously that can be said about this passage of scripture, but I just wanted to highlight these two main characters for you. And hold them up as something to hopefully encourage us, inspire us, and maybe even convict us a little bit of our need for greater submission and greater obedience and greater faithfulness and greater trust in the goodness and faithfulness and glory and power of God. Any final thoughts before we close in prayer? Thanks for letting us crash your classroom. Appreciate it. All right, let's pray.